Well, turn your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 8 this morning. I think other than reading through the Bible, um, Nehemiah 8 was first really brought to my attention sitting in a Bible college class, a homiletics class with uh, the professor, and he took us to Nehemiah 8 because Nehemiah 8 is probably, uh, contains within it, one of the best descriptions, biblical definitions of, of what is preaching and, and how do we understand what it is. And um, I'll, just for sake of effort this morning uh, in linguistics, I'll say preaching consistently, but you could easy, just as easily say teaching. What does it mean to preach the Bible? What does it mean to teach the Bible? I don't, I don't think they're radically different, preaching and teaching. Um, I think maybe teaching could be a little bit more interactive, but at the end of the day, taking the word of God, explaining it to God's people, and leading them to a point of decision. What do you do with it? Um, preaching is the art and science of interpreting the Bible, filtering it through a person uh, so that you would understand it. And so this morning in Nehemiah 8, we get to see um, one of the clearest examples and definitions of that in all of the Bible. So I'm trying to get my president to come up. There it is. Got it, guys. Thank you. They are so helpful. Um, profoundly thankful for those guys. So Nehemiah chapter 8. And we can think of it in the way that it's, this is all about stories this morning. And so I want to read from verses 1 through 12. Uh, and then we'll just, by God's grace, unpack it this morning. And uh, it's my prayer that it's an encouragement to all of us. So Nehemiah chapter 8, you may remember uh, 7 through 11 are these bookends, and it's all about the restoration of the community in Jerusalem at this point. So Nehemiah 8, And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashem, Hash, boy, this one's, this one's a good one. Hashbadana, Hashbadana, Zechariah and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shebathai, Hodiah, and Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Jazabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law, while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Nehemiah is this autobiographical story, whether uh, we have it compiled directly by Nehemiah, or whether this is compiled by a later editor of all of Nehemiah's journals. This is Nehemiah's story. This is the way Nehemiah thought through how God rebuilt Jerusalem, the walls first. And as we began seeing last week, the whole community because that was really Nehemiah's heart, rebuild God's people, not just the city. And so as we come to this moment, we see this first unveiling of the word publicly uh, in the city, and it's part of the story. 
You know, some stories just transcend time and connect with all of us, even sometimes if they're cartoons. Uh, Toy Story is a franchise has done a wonderful job of layering complexity upon complexity and impacting people's lives. And so while it is this computer graphics story, cartoons telling about a fantasy of toys coming alive, it does a wonderful job of layering stories about forgiveness, togetherness, loss, growing up, childhood, dreams, and community. What does it mean to be family with people that aren't your family? And so Toy Story does all of this, even leading some otherwise very stable adults to tears of watching toys about to die or being taken and given away. And so it does a great job. Why? Because it connects with all of us. It finds a way of building connection. And neuroscientists have actually discovered that that's exactly what stories do. One of the first researchers to deal with the subject of identity, how we think about who we are, our sense of self, he began to contemplate in the 60s and wrote in his own journals, maybe it would be most helpful for people to think about their life as a story where the seasons of your life are like chapters and there's conflicts and characters that come in and out of your life. And what's fascinating is since then, uh, further research has discovered that's actually exactly how we think. We, most of us, we tend to think of life like a story, the story of our lives, and it's how we make sense of things. Furthermore, they've discovered that stories is how we build connection with each other. Hearing your story, telling my story, seeing the commonalities, the similarities, this is why it works so well. I, I remember growing up, and anytime my dad and his brothers would get together, um, the women would all go inside, and, and my dad was, it was just three boys in their family, four boys in, in our family when I was growing up. And so all the men would stand outside, stand around somebody's car, looking at the car, the engine, and, and having very testosterone-fueled conversations about horsepower. <laughs> That's what they would do. And they would tell stories. And, and um, as a child, I would stand there and I would listen. And I understood maybe 10% of what they were talking about. But they, they told stories and it's how they built connection. The women inside would tell stories and it's how they would build connection. And this is why women will get together and they'll tell birth stories and life stories. And this is why couples will get together and tell stories of how they met. This is why we'll get together and we'll tell stories about our workplace, our schools, our different jobs. Some of my favorite questions, I'll ask couples, tell me how you met. Tell me your love story. Uh, I'll ask anybody, tell me the first job you had. You'll find fascinating information when you hear about somebody's first job and what life was like. They're all intended to build connection and community. This is what stories do. Well, that's what happens in the Bible. The Bible is one long story, 66 different books, uh, dozens of authors, but it's God's redemptive story, all told by the Holy Spirit inspiring people as they wrote. And so as we hear God's story, it's really important that we build connection between his story and our story critically important. It helps us to enter into the world that God has created. It helps us to make sense of life and the things around us. We, it helps us to build connection with other believers, other people who claim Christ that are nothing like us otherwise. Suddenly we are connected and our stories intersect and they seem to crash together. There's this amazing set of verses in 2 Corinthians 1 where we're actually told to, as we receive comfort from God, to comfort others with the same comfort in any comfort, in any sorrow. What's fascinating about that is he doesn't say those of you that have suffered, only who have suffered miscarriages, you should comfort only those who have suffered miscarriages. Or those who have lost a spouse should only comfort those who have lost a spouse. Or those who have suffered financial hardship or a health um, tragedy or a personal tragedy but instead, what he's saying is your stories can connect in such a way that I've received comfort over here in a completely different set of circumstances, but that my story and God's story in my life can somehow connect to your story and bring you comfort. And so the loneliness experienced and the loss of a spouse can communicate into the loneliness of someone who feels like they don't have any friends. Suddenly, 
the, the one who has suffered economically and the fear and the loss of control and the terror of why am I going to meet my bills and what am I going to do? Suddenly all those fears and those anxieties, they are by God's grace able to suddenly bring comfort to a person over here who's experiencing anxiety over a health issue and a health crisis. And so our stories begin to intersect with one another. Uh, it begins to happen as we intersect with God's story. And so as the Bible story becomes very real to us, it builds connection points to us. And so when we read stories like the woman at the well, this woman who didn't choose life in so many ways, she didn't choose to be a woman born in a hyper-masculinized culture, misogynistic, and women couldn't even testify in court saying she'd ask to be born a woman in that kind of culture. She didn't ask to be born a Samaritan in a culture where the Jews were at wars with the Samaritan and Samaritans, and they didn't even worship in Jerusalem any longer. She didn't choose any of those things. She didn't choose to have been divorced and left by multiple husbands. And so she's a product of things in her life that she didn't choose, and yet they are difficult and terrible, and they bring suffering. And then she's made other choices as she has consistently gone back to her own way, and now she's living with a man that she's not married to. And so we can identify with her story because I can think of all these things in my story that I didn't choose. And they've hurt me. And then I can honestly think of all these things in my story that I did choose. And to see Jesus interact with her in a patient, kind, direct, loving way and call her to himself, suddenly I have connection there. And it helps me to make sense of my life. And it helps me to understand God better. And so whether it is the woman at Jacob's well or whether it's the story of the Good Samaritan, an enemy who cares for one who's broken and bruised and to realize that Jesus is the ultimate Good Samaritan, as our stories come together and as they intersect with one another and with God's story, it builds understanding and connection. It helps to make sense of things. Well, this morning we come to this momentous part of a story. We can rejoice when we see how God's story intersects with our story in all his glory. There are multiple layers to these 12 verses that I read. There is rich history and background to what is occurring here that not being Jews and not being aware of the Jewish calendar that we would blitz right by. That's important to really understand. There are aspects of this story that both look to the past and prophesy of the future that unless we're super acquainted and we've spent a lot of time studying the Bible, we probably would miss and not understand. And so the best stories are stories that we have to dig into a little bit. And that's the way it is this morning. And so let's begin right off the bat by looking at the characters in this story. This is almost like first layer, um, first level of understanding and comprehending what's going on here in Nehemiah chapter 8. Let's start with the least of the guys, the preachers. They, they actually, in many ways, they are the least important part of the story. We have Ezra and his companions, as well as a group of Levites, uh, who go through the crowd, helping people to understand what Ezra has been preaching. Now, Ezra has been living in Jerusalem this entire time, preaching and reading and studying. And so it's about 13 or 14 years that Ezra has been doing this. So he's not a newbie to this kind of functionality and this concept. So Nehemiah is picking a very particular moment. This would have occurred sometime in the fall, uh, sometime between September and October. The walls have been rebuilt since late spring, early summer. And so this is really, there would have been one other feast that could have happened in the interim um, during the summer. But, but we understand exactly when this is because he tells us. The point being, Ezra's been preaching a lot, but this is the first time Nehemiah mentions it. Nehemiah has carefully selected this moment to fit his story. His story is this, God has rebuilt the walls, now he's rebuilding a community. And it's critical for us to understand that the very heartbeat of God's community is the word. So you've got to have the presence of the word, and this is exactly what he tells us. And so you have Ezra here, and he's preaching. Uh, there's men, there are, everyone can see him, he's on this built wooden platform, uh, we, we can guess where this was on the city. And if you were to look at Jerusalem uh, from an overhead plain kind of view, 10,000 foot view, this would be about center of the east side of Jerusalem. There's the Gihon Spring there. 
Um, there, so there was a lot of water that flowed there. This is the area where the priests would come to do ritual cleansing and bathing. This is where they would come and get the water for the water libation ceremony and those feasts and festivals. And this is where he's gathered. And so he's standing on this wooden platform, uh, and he has six guys on his right side and seven guys on his left. And so this is a pretty big platform. Uh, what are these guys doing? Well, it goes on for six hours or so. Probably Ezra didn't speak the entirety of the time, but rather they took turns reading and then giving explanation. These are men that are faithful, men that could be trusted. Thirteen other men are going throughout the crowd, and the Bible says that they are giving a sense of the word. Now, what does that mean that they were giving a sense of the word? Well, it's an interesting Hebrew word that's, that, that we translated as sense here. It's translated different in the King James and the New American Standard Bible. Uh, and some of them it's actually translated as translate. They translated the word. The fact of the matter is most of the people that are gathered there didn't speak Hebrew. They lived in Babylon and they spoke Aramaic. And so when Ezra's reading the law, though, he is reading it in Hebrew. It hadn't yet been translated into Aramaic for the common people, for anyone else to be able to read and understand. And so that, that's later, it's the Targums that that happens. Jewish rabbis think it started here, that they were like, oh, we need to have the, the word in our own language. And so part of the job is here, Ezra's standing there and he's reading these passages and they don't have a clue what he's talking about. Lots of the people. And so you have 13 guys. And so the thousands of people that are gathered would have been sectioned in groups. They stayed there and these guys would go around and as Ezra read, they would translate it and then they would help to give the interpretation of it and help them to apply it. What's Ezra reading? Well, I said at the start of the service that we're not entirely sure. When it says the law of Moses there, it would have taken more time than six hours to read just even the first five books. History and tradition tells us that Psalm 81 was, is always read at this feast that, that occurs. It's called the Feast of Trumpets. Uh, and you might remember even Psalm 81, it talks about the, at the blast of the trumpet. And it's a call to repentance and it's a call, uh, a reminder other than that, we're not told specifically what it is. Um, probably it's different sections, but also it's just as likely Nehemiah doesn't tell us the specific passage because the power is in the word and any part of the word. Um, and so he didn't necessarily want people to say, oh, well, whatever Ezra preached, that's what we need to preach as well. We have this wonderful description of what preaching is. It says in verse 8 there that they gave the sense of the word. They read from the book from the law of God clearly and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. You may have wondered at some points if the word is so powerful, why in the world am I up here doing this? Wouldn't it be just as effective to just have um, different readers and we just read passages of scripture? And the word is powerful. But God has also designed the word in such a way that it requires study and understanding. And so Ezra, the reason my professor all the way back in these homiletics classes took us to Nehemiah 8 is because this describes what good preaching is. You read the word and you explain the word. Now that, that's a terrifying concept. I have full confidence in the word. I have 100% confidence in the word being without error. I don't have 100% confidence in myself, and neither should I. Definitely you shouldn't. And so it's a terrifying thing to stand up here in a role of trying to explain God's word to you. But this is what preaching is. It is studying God's word and explaining it. Now, uh, by God's grace, it's why when you get to the New Testament, it says, you know, you have a pastor. Um, if you can, if a church can, not all churches can. If you can afford it, pay the guy so that he can give himself to reading, praying, and studying the word because it takes time. You invest in it. You want to make sure you get it right. You want to make sure you understand it. When you come on a Sunday morning, you should hear more from a sermon than what you could just pick up by reading uh, through an expanded Bible or through a study Bible. There, there should be more comprehension to it, more layers of depth explained to you. Not a new revelation, but how do I understand exactly what's going on here? And most importantly, 
What's it do with me? What's it have to do with me? What do I do with it in my life? A preacher should make the word clearer to your understanding, help you to know what to do with its truths, unpack its place in the greater story of the Bible, help it to intersect with your story, whether they use that as an illustration like I'm doing this morning or not. You should walk out of church consistently thinking, oh, I understand that better now. I see what I should do with that. You should have a reminder of the truths by the end of the 12 verses this morning that we'll study by the end of this sermon. You should have a greater understanding of what does this mean for your life. You should be convicted over sin if there's sin in your life that this speaks to. You should be encouraged in righteousness if you've been living and behaving in a way that matches the text. And that should come along beside you. You should know how to apply this to your life. It should comfort you in Christ, give you a deeper love for God and others. Don't test preaching by its agreement with what you already think. But test it by asking, is that what the Bible really says? Test preaching by the clarity it gives you and what you should do with it. I've sat under um, preachers before. Uh, God, God has kindly given me a really good memory. That's, that's a curse and a blessing. Um, and I remember sitting under preachers before. I've been sitting there, I'm like, I think I've heard that before. And I've written out the outline before they finished the sermon. Because I'd read it somewhere else. I'm like, oh, they're just preaching somebody else's sermons. Now, if I did that in my seminary training, I'd get expelled. It's called plagiarism. Um, I, we once had some folks visiting the church for a while and really kind, sweet couple, and I uh, went to visit them at their house, and uh, they wanted to give me, they, had a, they were clearing out their library, so they had all these books, and in the process, they asked me, where do I get my sermons from? And I didn't know how to answer, because it felt coy to say, the Bible? Like, I don't, you know, how do you answer that question? And I didn't understand, well, what they, they thought that basically there was this corpus, there was this um, stockpiling of really great sermons over the years, I mean, Christianity has been around for 2,000 years. And what preachers did was they just picked one of those sermons every week and preached somebody else's sermons. There are preachers who do this. This is horrible. <laughs> if you quote somebody, give them credit. If you use somebody, give them credit. That, that's, that's the way you should approach. It's also really important for you that your pastors and that your teachers are taking the word and filtering it through their life on a consistent basis. Uh, it should be your prayer that God changes me before I ever stand up here and speak to you. It's a terrifying thing because at the end of the day, none of the rest of you get paid to study the Bible all the time. Well, that, mean, that puts me at tremendous risk because it means I have literally thousands upon thousands of hours studying truths of the word that there's no possible way I have enough time in my life to apply it all. It puts me at tremendous risk of being a hypocrite. It's a terrifying concept. And yet it is God's design to use very weak vessels to pour his word through. The reality is, um, and I remind you of this, that we have these broken clay pots. People put all, church put all, we have broken clay pots because I am just so convinced that it's important to have always in front of us that all of us are broken pots. We all come with cracks and fissures and holes. And if you wanted to carry water, you don't use a broken clay pot because all the water is going to drain out before you ever get it to its destination. But if you wanted to showcase what was inside the pot, then you'd use a broken clay pot. And it's the light of the gospel, Paul tells us, it should be in it. And so why does God use very, very, very faulty, risky people to teach truth? Because it's his design through very, very broken people to showcase his glory and his truth. And it should be your heart and your hunger to hear it through people that live in a vulnerable way. Ezra 7.10 tells us something very important about Ezra that you should look for in preachers and teachers of the word. Ezra 7.10 said this, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. That's core. Study, apply, and teach. That's the most important part. That's the single greatest requirement for any proclaimer of the word at any time that they are a student, that they are an applier, before they were ever a teacher. There's actually a connection then with these people 2,500 years ago, sitting there on a Sabbath, hearing somebody read the word and explain it to them. 
Your story intersects with God's people. You are God's covenant people now. They are God's covenant people then. This is the way it's always been. It's like we're reliving it. Open the word and teach us. This is what is happening. And so the next set of characters then are the most central characters in this section of 12 verses, and it's the people. They're at the center part of the story because um, their name, their reference, shows up 13 times in these 12 verses. It references the people. Nine of those times, it says all the people. This is in the middle of a section about rebuilding community. Community is people. It's not buildings, ultimately. It's not structure. Nehemiah understood that. You could have the walls, but if there's nobody living inside of the city, then what good is it? So eventually he's going to say, let's bring people into the city in chapter 11. Here it's the whole community, the people that are living in all these surrounding villages, almost tent dwellings set up outside. They've built into more permanent structures. They all come now to hear the word, to hear it explained to them. There are three key markers about the people I just want to point out to us, first of all, their unity. You can see it in verses 1 and 2, first of all. All the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. They told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, and now he wants to define it even better, men and women and all who could understand what they had heard. And so we're told in verses 1 and 2, it's the men, it's the women, it's anybody that could hear or understand. That actually tells us that children are a part of this. There's a place for children to hear and to know the word. The Barna Group, which is a famed study group, they did a, a study, they've done this same study a number of times. These are the latest results. What is the most common ages that people come to profess Christ and agree to following him? Really the core of salvation. I see that I'm a sinner. I turn from my sin, I put my faith in Jesus, and I follow him. Two-thirds of people will do that before the age of 18. It's critically important that children hear the word. They've actually discovered that the set of values that you have embraced by the age of 12 most commonly is the same set of values you have at 60. You actually change very little on core issues. Now, here's what's really interesting about that. Your sense of self, your identity, is reflected in your value system. And so for most people, it's really fixed before they even head into teenage years. Then what are the teenage years doing? The teenage years are the, typically the transition period between what I was told who I am and what I believe and me actually coming to embrace that on my own. These children come to hear the word. They bring them so that they will sit under the word. Um, we recognize the difficulty. And so uh, different people approach it different ways, right? So some are like, um, well, you should only, there should be no nursery, there should be no Sunday school, no children's church. All the children should be in the word in the, and hear the same word at the same time all the time. Fine. I'm not throwing rocks at that. I will say most people who embrace that, at least the leaders of that movement, they throw rocks at people like us. I'm not throwing stones. All I'm saying is fine. You want to do life that way? That's fine. All I know is I've also raised three kids and I've spent 30 years teaching. And I can tell you this, teaching in an age-appropriate way can be helpful. Fine. And so even this morning, up to a certain age, our children, they have a children's church or they have Sunday school. After a certain age, they're in here. Um, on a weekly basis, I ask my own teenagers, and I've asked them this for years, from the time that they were very young, what did you learn from the sermon today? I live in this reality. I know that even as I'm preaching over 45 minutes or 50 minutes, you tune in, tune out the whole time. Most of you wake up when I have a funny story to tell. It's the nature of trying to pay attention. So we can imagine six hours. I'm telling you, they should. I hope they brought some goldfish and snacks because that's a long time. But they understood the importance of the whole family being there. They are prioritizing this. There's a unique unity for this incredibly different group. Now, what do I mean by different? Because they're almost all Jews. This is almost universally Jewish. But you remember from Nehemiah, we've already learned that there are merchants here, there are middle class here, there are the poor and the impoverished, there are widows and orphans that have been mistreated, there are the incredibly wealthy, there are the nobility. They all gather together in the same place. The unity is around the word. There's a centrality to hearing God's word and having it applied to their lives and the joined commitment of it brings them joy and unity. 
And so there is a unity to people who want to hear the word. There's a desire here. Their desire for the word is made clear. It stands out that they have made hearing the word a priority. They call for Ezra in verse 1. They gather for six hours in verse 3. It says they read, he read it from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and all who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So they want to not just hear it, but they actually want to understand it. They are intentionally deciding to clue in. I think it's easy to just sit and zone out, daydream, think about other things. These people, because there's a hunger for the word and they want to hear the word, they pay attention to the word. I studied some statistics a few weeks ago. The reality is you, we are actually much less productive when we multitask. And so thinking that we can hear the word and do all these other things at the same time just isn't true. These people are clued in and they are making a point to focus on this. It's not just that. They, they seek to understand in verses 7 and 8 when he lists these men, it says they helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense that the people understood the reading. It's not uncommon when I'm writing sermons that I'll think of even individuals of you asking me this question, what's that have to do with me? And I think of it categorically. I'll think of it as singles. I'll think of it as marrieds. I'll think of it as those with younger children, those with older children. I'll think of it as those that are retirees, those that are empty nesters. I'll think of it as older women, younger women, older men, younger men, children. Uh, how, what does this have to do with me? This is the heartbeat of the people. I want to hear the word, not just so I can check a box and say I've heard the word, but I want to hear it so it impacts me. What do I do with this? Some truths and lives can be distilled into very easily understood concepts. When you get to the book of Galatians and it says walk in the spirit, for example, what in the world does it mean to walk in the spirit? You can easily preach months-long series on walking in the spirit, but you can also distill it down into a very simple sentence. What is walking in the spirit? It's thousands of daily decisions to love God and love others more than yourself. There it is. It's Twitter length. It's that simple. And I don't mean that there isn't a depth and a complexity and a nuance to it, but there it is. How do I walk in the Spirit? Thousands of daily decisions to love God and love others more than myself. How can I love you? How can I love God most or more than me in this situation that I'm learning how to walk in the Spirit? There's other aspects of life that are far more complex and require time and energy and attention. The short story of the little engine that could board book you can read it in just a few minutes to a small child and they can grasp the concept of not quitting that's important these are important truths but the story of joseph being sold out by his brothers beaten uh, almost murdered uh, lied about imprisoned sexually assaulted forgotten about before he's ever put in a position to forgive his brothers there's a complexity and a depth to that that takes chapters to unpack and it's important for us to see how his story intersects with our story. Job has 42, there's 42 chapters of suffering that you don't deserve. That's a long book. And you know this because we took a long time to go through it. But I actually think that's really important because when you're suffering and you didn't deserve it, guess what it feels like? A long time. And so I think there's a complexity that's important to deal with. It's sometimes just takes time this community in nehemiah's day is marked in this moment by a hunger for the word and the word sometimes takes time to deal with the complex stories of our lives then thirdly there's their response there's three key responses to this sermon or this series of sermons even from ezra verse six ezra blessed the lord the great god and all the people answered amen amen lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. 
But there's a lot in this passage that is descriptive, not necessarily prescriptive. We understand the difference, right? Descriptive tells us what happens. Prescriptive says this is what you should do. And it's interesting because different folks approach this either way. So maybe you've, I'm just curious, how many of you have ever been in a church or in a, in a, in a service before where they've said, let's all stand for the reading of the word? That's from this passage. Now, that doesn't always happen, and there's a number of occasions in the Bible, and there's actually far more occasions in the Bible where the word is read and you don't see that behavior. But there's lots of people that think that's a way you can honor the word. I'm not throwing rocks. Great, do it. What I, I don't care. Like, fine. But they're taking it, and that's what they're saying. Well, the funny thing is, when he comes here, he says, amen and amen. I've been in a lot of church services where everybody stands for the reading of the word, but nobody's saying amen, amen, and they would poo-poo the concept of lifting your hands. Like, how dare you? What is it, what, so what do we take away from this if, if it's not necessarily prescriptive that you always need to stand or that you always need to say amen and amen or that you always need to, to raise your hands? I would actually take away from this. There is a physical response to the word. They get it. They're into it. With their whole person, it matters to them. I think most importantly, it's an explanation or description of people that are invested in the word. <laughs> um, my brothers will tease me sometimes. Um, have I ever had anybody fall asleep in a sermon? <laughs> That's old hat. Yeah, plenty of people fall asleep in sermons. Um, now, the hard thing about that is I've had people fall asleep in sermons that work third shift and they're exhausted. I've had young moms fall asleep in sermons who are more exhausted <laughs> than Medical students, fourth-year med students, residents. I've had folks that are on medication fall asleep in sermons. I've had children snoring in sermons. Um, I've, I've preached long enough that I'm like, I don't know why somebody falls asleep in a sermon, so I'm not going to judge them, because I think all those are valid reasons. And so I don't judge folks that fall asleep in a sermon that just aren't clued in. But I've also fallen asleep in sermons. And I've fallen asleep in sermons because I'm just tuned out and not paying attention. That's my heart. It's my job as a preacher to not bore you with the word of God. And so I try not to speak in a nice, even tone that you find very soothing. It makes you feel very comfortable. And sees how many of you can I put to sleep with my soothing voice. <clears throat> All I'm saying is this, when we come to hear God's word, we should prioritize it in a way that even physically we're prepared to receive it. And if you're so exhausted um, and you come, praise God for you being here. Just know that I'm not judging you from up here. If you're, that, if you're tired or medicated or whatever, I really don't. I'm glad you're here. I really am, genuinely. From someone who sat under a lot of preaching, I've sat under more preaching than I've preached. Um, I just want to encourage you from my own heart disposition, I know what it's like to come to hear God's word and not be invested. And so if that's going on in your heart, I leave that between you and God, and I encourage you and challenge you to not walk that way, but to respond, to understand what it's doing. Secondarily, we, uh, we see the response in their sorrowness, verses 9 and 10. Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine. Send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites go on, they calm the people saying, be quiet for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. As these people are hearing the word, there's a settling of um, conviction over who they are and the way they've lived and what they've done. And they are responding to their own sinful awareness with sorrow and with repentance. This is exactly the way we should respond when the word lands on a sinful heart. But then thirdly, they heed the encouragement of Nehemiah, Ezra, and the Levites in verse 12 because they, they stopped crying and all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Now what's fascinating is by the time you get to chapter 9, verse 1, there is weeping. 
But what he's saying is, as you hear the word right now, this isn't the place for it. It's like Ecclesiastes tells us there's a time to sow and a time to reap. There's a time to be born, a time to die. There's a time to weep and a time for joy. That again reminds us of the complexity of life. What's most important here is that there's an interaction with the word. They get it. I've preached at times and I've had folks that always amen at the wrong spots. You know, I'll say something and they're like, amen. And I was given an illustration of heresy. And it's like, oh, this is awkward. Um, I've preached in places where like nobody amens, nobody interacts. Everybody's kind of, that's, I don't know, it's just what they were. They're the frozen chosen. I don't know. It's, um, it's the response of it. But I just want to encourage you when you come to hear the word, recognize that you're here with others to hear the word. Recognize that there should be a desire to hear the word. Don't come just because to check the box, but come because you're hungry. I'm coming so I want you to be fed. You come ready to be fed. And then respond to it. Interact with it. Understand that God is intersecting with your story even this very moment. So that's the first layer. That's the first level. But let's talk about the story behind the story. Because there's a lot going on here that's more than just on these surfaces. First of all, this is a festival of anticipation. If you go all the way back to the first verse, he says this, the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly. Men and women and all could, could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. The Jewish calendar is not like our calendar. Their seventh month happens in the fall sometime. And because it runs on both a lunar and a sun cycle, it varies all the time. And so this could be anywhere from about mid-September to mid-October-ish. But there's something that happened on the first day of the seventh month in the Jewish calendar. And it was the Feast of Trumpets. It's a feast that's all about anticipation. It's called the Feast of Trumpets because they would blow trumpets to signal its beginning. Some say this is when specifically they blew the shofar horn, that deep ram's horn with a deep resonance to it that they blew. Others say they simply blew the trumpets. It's actually not clear when the Feast of Trumpets is prescribed in the book of Leviticus, which one it is, it's just important to know that they started the day with these trumpet blasts, whether it's shofar or those silver trumpets of the temple, those loud horns that are blasting, that are announcing that it's beginning. But it's actually part of a much larger story. At Mount Sinai, when the Jews had come out of Egypt, and they traveled into the wilderness, they come to Mount Sinai, and this is where God is going to give his word to Moses to give to the people. And the Bible says in Hebrews, as it's describing that event, that as they heard God's voice, it sounded like the blast of trumpets. This loud, piercing sound that cuts through everything. The voice of Christ speaking to John in the book of Revelation. In Revelation 1.10 and in chapter 4, verse 1, he's described, John says, I hear this voice behind me and it sounded like the blast of a trumpet and it's Jesus Christ speaking to him. The return of Christ is described with Jesus descending with a trumpet blast and quite frankly, that may be actually the cry of Jesus himself telling the angels to bring his children home seems to be the emphasis in Matthew 24.31. To start this feast with a trumpet blast, is a deep story theme throughout the Bible from Mount Sinai all the way through Nehemiah, all the way through Jesus' day, all the way to when Jesus will return. And it always says this, get ready. You're about to hear the voice of God. So when does this feast happen? Yep, first day of the seventh month. It's in the law. First day of the seventh month, get all of Israel together and celebrate the Feast of Trumpets. Now, what's really fascinating is in Hebrews, when it describes this trumpet blast at Mount Sinai, when they heard the trumpets, it terrified them. It terrified them. They were told, don't even touch the mountain or God will kill you. And then they hear the trumpet blast and they were just scared to death that God was going to wipe them all out. When the blast happens at the return of Christ, we who are his followers will be relieved and guess what? Everyone else will be terrified. 
And so you start to have this theme developed at the Feast of Trumpets that when God speaks, those are whose children are comforted and those who are not are terrified. But it's always to prepare your hearts to hear God's word. It's an anticipation blast, an expectation that says, gather round, we're about to hear something important. We're about to hear the very words of God. Uh, It's like a medieval herald blowing the trumpet saying, hear ye, hear ye. When you come this morning, when when you made the decision to not hit the snooze button one more time, you grabbed your cup of coffee, you got yourself ready, and you came to church, you should have come this morning to hear the very words of God. I want you to know every single Sunday when you come, that is what is happening. It's like this trumpet blast. Prepare yourself to hear God's word. His story in that moment is intersecting with your story because what your heart and my heart hunger for as followers of God is to hear from him. I know you don't want to hear from me. You want to hear from him. The Feast of Trumpets was a way of saying, prepare yourself, anticipate hearing from God. Secondarily, this is a month of community. The seventh month in, in the Jewish calendar is the busiest month of the year. You have the Feast of Trumpets that takes place on the first day of the month. It's called Rosh Hashanah. On the 10th day of the month is the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. This is when all of Israel would gather in the one time of the year that the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and offer sacrifice and sprinkle blood on the Ark of the Covenant. So you start the seventh month, day one, with this Feast of Trumpets. Everybody gets together, they blow the trumpets, they blow the horns, and everybody gets together and they would hear the word of the law read to them, preached to them, so that they could understand it. And it was to begin to prepare their hearts. Ten days later, they would show back up, and they would all gather together as a people, and they would watch as sacrifice for their sins are made, and the, and the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. Now, what's interesting is they didn't witness that, because they couldn't even go to the holy place. That was where the priests could go. The high priest went to the holy of holies. So then you had the courtyard of the men. Then you had the courtyard of the women. Then you had the courtyard of the Gentiles. And so word would pass through the crowd. Like whispers, he's gone in. And then word would pass. And they would all wait with anticipation, hoping that sacrifice is offered, hoping that the high priest has done what he's supposed to do so he doesn't get struck dead by God. And then the whisper would come through the crowd. He has come out. Our sins are forgiven. And so the first day of the month is Rosh Hashanah. The 10th day of the month is Yom Kippur. But then on the 15th day of the month is Sukkot. That is the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, We will deal a lot with that next week because Nehemiah goes straight from the Feast of Trumpets to the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles is a fascinating feast. Uh, Just overview, it's where they all lived in tents for a week. Now, why does Nehemiah emphasize these, and why does he wait to this moment to talk about restoration of a community? Because the seventh month is literally a month of community gatherings. Just imagine, just imagine if we were to follow this kind of schedule in May. Next month, next Sunday is May 7th. May 7th, we're going to celebrate communion together. Um, We'll spend time together. We always look forward to that. That's community building for us. But imagine if we gathered next Sunday and we started at our normal 930 time and we went for six hours, baby. Um, You know there'd have to be some breaks in there sometime. There would have to be some comfort breaks. People got to go to the bathroom. People are going to need some coffee. They need some snacks. We, we would celebrate communion together. We would have time together. Maybe we'd finish with a meal together, a whole church cookout at the end of it, and it would be a blast. We got Peter on the grill working the burgers because he's pretty amazing. Gary's brought some smoked meat because that's just legit. Tyler's got his smoker, his grills, kind of bringing some nice food. I, I, I love all those guys, so I'm going to eat everything they bring, so that's all right. Um, and, and so we just gather as a cookout. We just enjoy time as a church. For six hours, that's, that would be next Sunday. And then the next Sunday, we all gather again. And we gather and we do nothing but we pray and we confess sin. And we sing praises to God because he has forgiven us of our sins. And we are his children. And we take time that Sunday where every person in the church gives their testimony of how they came to know Christ. And how Jesus rescued them. How he chased them and and made them his own. 
and we celebrate, and with every person, we hear that. And then when we ask them, what is your greatest spiritual need right now? What is your greatest physical need, your very greatest financial need right now? And we just hear how God has rescued them, and we pray for them, and we embrace them, and we love on them. And then we all share with them ways that God has used them in our lives to express gratitude and affection and love to them. Do you think that that would build community? But it's not done yet, because the next Sunday we all get together, and we all camp out here at church. For a week. Now listen, some of y'all like camping because secretly you're sadistic. <laughs> we had a camp out here at the church a number of years ago. It was actually a lot of fun. Uh, waking up in the morning as condensation ran down our tent and dripped down on us. It, and it, it felt like water straight from a glacier was just more fun than I could imagine. Um, Years and years ago, went on a missions trip to Guatemala, and we stayed in a church fellowship hall, maybe, maybe half the size of our auditorium. And to give a sense of privacy, they set up tents in it. So I'm in a tent, and um, some of you know John Pate was there, and uh, Orville and Sharon Booth were there, and several of us were there, and we were all living in tents. Let me, let me tell you, tent fabric does not stop snoring sounds. You hear it all. You know it all. There, there's privacy, but not a lot of privacy. Well, imagine our whole church camping out here for a full week. What do you, so think of that month. What if that was the month of May? Do you think at the end of that month, you would have had to work through things like irritations with others, frustrations with others, affection, appreciation for others, so that it would build stronger community? Without a doubt. Without a doubt. This is a month of community, and this feast starts it. They come here together to hear the word, and it's beginning a process of God knitting their hearts together. This is a story of community. It's a story of friends and outcasts, strangers and orphans made family. People that are alone all the time, well, do you think that they would look forward to this month? you think their hearts would crave this? The laughter, the stories you would tell, the jokes figuring out which kids go to what school and all carpooling together. You deciding, I'm going to make food for everybody and all the tents around me. And let's, you know what, let's just get together. Let's just throw together everything we've got. Family reunions are communities based on blood. Alumni associations are communities based on academic history. This community, our community, is a community based on something far deeper. The fact that we've all been rescued by Jesus. It's community, it's story, but then it's also a celebration of culture. We have different calendars. We have an academic calendar, we have an agricultural calendar, we have a tax calendar, we have an annual calendar. This is the start of the Jewish agricultural calendar. It happens right after the grape harvest. This year, Rosh Hashanah will happen on September 17th. It's a fall festival. It's a celebration of all that God has done for them over the last year and in anticipation of all he will do in the coming year. They've seen his good work. They've seen what he's done. And in this specific occasion, they've seen walls built in 52 days. They've seen food provided when, remember, they had none. They, they had, Nehemiah confronted them, the nobles. They had to start giving up the food and giving up the money. They saw God provide. They've seen his good work. Now they want to hear his good word. Every week we gather after this service for a time of prayer and we always include at the start of that a time of testimony and of rejoicing. This is what you are missing if you are not here for that. You miss every week hearing what God is doing. They go together. Hearing his word and hearing what he's doing helps to knit your story with his story and everyone else's story around you. It's a critical component to building community between you and God and you and others. I, I'm not fussing at you. I'm just, it's like you don't know what you're missing. It's like that first time you give that kid bacon. Oh, bacon. When my heart is weak, when my faith is frail, when I hear and I see what God is doing, is a reminder to me that at any given moment he's doing a million things and I might be aware of two or three of them. 
When you hear of God being on the move, it builds your faith. It encourages the faint-hearted. It blesses the sad. The work of God is where you see the word of God on the move. These people have seen God's work. Now they want to hear God speak. Can I just ask you, just in this moment, how is God moving and speaking in your story? When you hear him speak, you want to see him move. When you see him move, you want to hear him speak because it's a deeply relational connection as you hear and you experience his unfolding story. It's a celebration of culture because these people have seen God move. Now they want to hear what he says. Sometimes it's the other way around. Sometimes you hear what he says and you want to see him move. It builds community. It celebrates God's culture of his people. And then lastly, it's a gospel story. The festivals of the seventh month to actually tell the gospel. They start with the word. The God's people hear his word and it starts to penetrate their heart. It's, it's like soaking in to their hearts. Uh, my wife and I were at Lowe's the other week and um, picked up a bag of wildflowers. So we got home, we've got a front flower bed, scraped all the mulch off, dug into the dirt, and, and we, we said wildflowers. Um, now, we are not green thumb kind of people. So, like, I'm reading the instructions while my wife was sowing wildflowers. I mean, we, we, we have coated the ground in wildflower seeds. And I'm just like, well, we're going to get what we can get, right? So we covered dirt back on. I'm just, I'm just, every day I'm out there watering. I'm out there watering. I'm out there in my, in my PJs and my slippers. I'm watering. Look like, look like an old man out there just watering my flowers. Guess what? I don't care. Let them judge. Because if I get some flowers, it's going to be beautiful. But I'm letting it soak in. Like the word has to soak into, has to penetrate into our hearts and into our lives. And that's what this, this trumpet feast is doing. They're hearing the word for six hours and it's soaking into them. God has a story and he wants my story to connect to his story. How do I understand? Because it's going to build community and connection with God and with others. What is God doing? How is God on the move in my life? And it always results in repentance. And so you start with the word and then you hit Yom Kippur, you hit the Day of Atonement and there is repentance. And you actually see the first thing that people want to do is repent. There's a sorrowing over sin. And they actually have to be reminded, guys, there's going to be a moment for this. There is a time to rejoice. There's a time to weep. You're going to have plenty of time to weep. Now is a day to rejoice because you've heard God's word. It's a day to celebrate. And so as the word penetrates our heart, as God's word comes into your heart, you start to turn from your sin. And so you see the gospel. I hear the word. I see who I am. I turn from my sin. And then you have the Feast of Tabernacles, which is essentially this, go follow God. They go into the wilderness. They have the pillar of fire by night. They have the, the, the pillar of smoke by day. God leads them. When they're hungry, he feeds them. When they're thirsty, he gives them water out of a rock. He, he gives them his law. He gives them his commands. And it's hard. And they follow him because in their wilderness, and, it, and it's called in some ways the wilderness of sin. And it's a place like, I can't live on my own. I need to follow God. It's the gospel. I hear the word. I respond to the word. I follow Jesus. The seventh month is a festivals of the gospel story. What's your story? Has the gospel story intersected with your story? Where are you at in that journey? Have you heard the word explain who you are? Have you turned from your sin? Are you following Christ? Is your story this morning one of following, one of turning, one of hearing? Do you hunger to see and hear him more? Do you celebrate with others bound together in community by the greatest story ever told, the story of sinners made saints? We can rejoice when we see how God's story intersects with our story in all his glory. How? How can you do this when we hear from God and it speaks into our daily lives? Just this week, we were having a conversation with our children uh, about communion, what it means. And this tension of the joy and sorrow of communion. And the sorrowing over our sin and the cost of but the joy that the price has been paid. And there is a time to weep and there's a time to rejoice. And I just want to wonder, do you embrace the reality of God's story intersecting with your life? Your neediness this week, your longing for something deeper and more meaningful. 
It happens when we see God on the move, experience his power and his provision in our daily lives. Almost to a laughable degree. I was joking with our life group a few weeks ago. We wanted to um, uh, sponsor one of the Azania children. It was like, okay, we'll, we'll figure this out. This is our budget. And I looked at my wife. I said, yeah, this is our budget. I, I think we can do it. Make a little bit of a sacrifice here. We can do it. And then, like, literally the next day we get a check from South Carolina State Government because they're known for giving you money. <laughs> Guess what it was? The exact amount to sponsor a child for a whole year. Thank you, uh, you know, South Carolina State Government sponsoring an orphan from Azania this year. How do you not see God on the move in those moments? How, do you, how have you seen him work? That should make you want to hear from him. When we've been rescued by the greatest story, the gospel story, it is ours and we are his. When we gather with others who have embraced the gospel so we're part of a community of rescued people, when we weep together and rejoice together as we journey through life, when we do that, we rejoice to see how God's story intersects with our story in all his glory. He is kind to us to speak to us and to move among us. And may we rejoice in him for it. Father, we thank you for helping us to understand life through the filter of your story. Father, I ask that you would help us to come hungry for the word, to respond to the word that we hear, to obey it, to rejoice in it, to see you on the move, and to tell others of how we've seen you moving so that we might celebrate your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with us for our closing song.